0: I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn to Jeremiah chapter 7, Jeremiah chapter 7. We'll read um, not the entire chapter, we're going to read down through verse 27. Um, the chapter divisions are a little unfortunate here, they kind of interrupt an area, and uh, so we want to handle that next week. And so we're going to do Jeremiah chapter 7, verses 1 through 27. This morning, I invite you to read along as I read out loud in Jeremiah chapter 7, out of the New King James Version. God's word declares, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, hear the word of the Lord, all you Judah who enter at these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your doings, and I will cause you to dwell in this place. Do not trust in these lying words, saying, The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. For if you thoroughly amend your ways and your doings, if you thoroughly execute judgment between a man and his neighbor, if you do not oppress the stranger, the fatherless, And the widow and do not shed innocent blood in this place or walk after other gods to your hurt. Then I will cause you to dwell in this place in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. Behold, you trust in lying words that cannot profit. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, burn incense to Baal and walk after other gods whom you do not know? And then come and stand before me. In this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered to do all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of thieves in your eyes? Behold, I, even I, have seen it, says the Lord. But go now to my place, which was in Shiloh, where I set my name at the first, and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. And now, because you have done all these works, says the Lord, and I spoke to you, rising up early and speaking, but you did not hear. And I called you, but you did not answer. Therefore I will do to the house which is called by my name, in which you trust, and to this place which I gave to you and your fathers, as I have done to Shiloh. I will cast you out of my sight, as I have cast out all your brethren and the whole posterity of Ephraim. Therefore, do not pray for this people, nor lift up a cry or prayer for them, nor make intercession to me, for I will not hear you. Do you not see what they do in the streets of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood, the fathers kindle the fire, and the women knead dough to make cakes for the Queen of Heaven. And they pour out drink offerings to other gods, that they may provoke me to anger. Do they provoke me to anger, says the Lord? Do they not provoke themselves to the shame of their own faces? Therefore, says the Lord God, behold, my anger and my fury will be poured out on this place, on man and on beast, on the trees of the field and on the fruit of the ground, and it will burn and not be quenched. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Add your burnt offerings to your sacrifices and eat meat. For I did not speak to your fathers or command them in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt concerning burnt offerings and sacrifices. But this is what I commanded them, saying, Obey my voice. And I will be your God and you shall be my people and walk in all the ways that I have commanded you that, I may, that it may be well with you. Yet they did not obey or incline their ear but followed the counsels and the dictates of their evil hearts and went backward and not forward. Since the day that your fathers came out of the land of Egypt, until this day, I have even sent to you all my servants, the prophets, daily rising up early and sending them. Yet they did not obey me or incline their ear, but stiffened their neck. They did worse than their fathers. Therefore you shall speak all these words to them, but they will not obey you. You shall also call to them, but they will not answer you. I have a couple of questions to start off the message this morning that hopefully will put into perspective what Jeremiah is dealing with in his ministry. Uh, and the two questions are biting. Uh, they are difficult and it's easy to pass them off. It's easy to simply um, give pa- answer that we know is the right one. It is another thing to delve into our hearts and find out the truth. And rightly, does Jeremiah, the one that says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who could know it? Uh, but the questions, again, are, are difficult ones because we tend not to want to meditate and consider and uh, really be honest with ourselves. And so the two questions I really want to just start off this morning to understand... Jeremiah and his ministry and the people of Israel, Judah particularly, and the the Jerusalemites that he was dealing with, including the priests and the prophets, um, are, what are you trusting in? From a day-to-day basis, who and what do you trust in? Who and what do we trust in? Do we trust in the promises of God, the declaration of God, or do we trust in economists, lawyers, For some reason, politicians, the experts, education, um, what are we trusting in? Our bank accounts? Our retirement funds? Our possessions? What are we trusting in? The second question... That's an eternal question. The second question... um, is a more temporal one. And that is, how has your life become more like Christ in the past weeks and months? How have you experienced the transformation of God in your life? I'm not talking general terms. I'm talking about real specific nuts and bolts, wheels on the ground, active means to say this is how my life has been impacted by my faith this week, this month, this year. I know the year is only a month old, but in the past 12 months. And indeed, since I have come to know Christ, we have sung the song Higher Ground this morning. I want to press on to higher ground, the the psalmist declares. And I know that that's going to be a lifelong pursuit, that there's going to be opposition, and one of those oppositions I'm going to encounter is my own interests in this world and the influences they have on me which trump the influences of God's word. So the question is, how have we evidenced our faith and the work of getting to higher ground, not just intellectual pursuits, but genuinely becoming more like Christ? And maybe that is a very sparse answer because there's sparse evidence, Well, this is some of what Jeremiah is dealing with among his people. He's dealing with a very religious people whose trust is misfounded, misguided, misdirected. But he's also dealing with a people who are convinced that they can persist without change. They can persist in their current action and not ever have transforming power of God at work in their life, and they can still please God, that they can do so by the low ground, they can do so by no pursuits that please God, and somehow it is God's fault if they didn't get to the higher ground of deeper faith. If our answer to some of those questions, particularly the second one, um, is very weak and we struggle to identify them, then you'll begin to understand the repetitive nature of the prophet's work. And the repetitive nature of my preaching. The repetitive nature of a man that wanders in the wilderness dressed in camel's hair who just says the same thing over again, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. We can begin to understand the necessity of the repetitiveness of good preaching when we start to look around and recognize the lack of effect upon the hearers. That there is a necessity to persist in this because there's a stubbornness to be responsive to the message and genuinely open up one's heart to change Not in the world sense of change, of clothing, but of transformation, of being different from this day forward than I have been in past days. Because of reaching a higher plane of walk with God, a knowledge of God, and a deeper penetration of this truth into my very life to redefine me. And this is the difficult work, and it creates an animosity. Why do you keep telling me the same thing over and over again? It happens between parents and their children, when children persist in doing the same wrong behavior over and over and over again. Say, How many times must I correct that same wrong behavior? And there starts to build up an animosity between parent and child and the child's response to a parent's correction, which is necessary because the behavior has persisted, is to roll his eyes as, oh, I've heard this all before. And no change occurs. We see it in that relationship, and yet we participate with our children in it, in our relationship with God, and no change occurs. And we go, well, I keep hearing the same message over and over again. And this is what we are going to drive on and I'm going to hammer over and over again is where is the evidence of a deepening of your faith in practical terms? Where is the, the basis of your declaration of trust when in fact your activity demonstrates a very misplaced trust? So as we go into Jeremiah chapter 7, and we tend to have a little bit of a scornful view towards the Israelites, um, maybe if you keep those two questions percolating in your mind, you will have a very different understanding of not only this chapter of Jeremiah, but most all the subsequent chapters of Jeremiah as we look into them. Uh, we, as I shared last week, we've really finished the introductory um, passages of his ministry, and we're going to see now a a strong repetitiveness to the themes that we have studied somewhat carefully in the first six chapters. We're going to see them being brought back over and over, sometimes verbatim, verse after verse, verbatim from out of the first six chapters. And rather than just rolling our eyes and saying, oh, we've heard that all before, let's be careful to be tender hearted. And to recognize that the reason repetition is necessary is because the behavior has persisted. So we come into chapter 7 prepared, hopefully, to see the purposes of God lovingly exercised towards us in giving us another word of discipline, another word of, of rebuke. Another word. Another invitation to repentance. And even helping us define that repentance very carefully. So we can know, here's the direction I should be going. Before we do so, let's go, Lord, in prayer together. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you again for your word before us, your spirit within us, and your people around us. And Lord, our prayer is that your word might uh, reach us afresh And might reach us with hearts soft and tender to its truth and with an attitude that is ready to leave all to follow you and to allow every part of our lives to be transformed into your Son in a radical fashion that defies the wisdom of this world and yet demonstrates great faith. Lord, lead us into that way. Through your word this morning, in Christ Jesus' name, amen. Well, we find, again, Jeremiah sent out, and chapter 7, verse 1 says, The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, and again, this is a phrase we're going to see on a regular basis. We're also going to see, as I said in Jeremiah, a responsiveness, that this is not just God telling Jeremiah, tell the people. Um, that's one facet of it, but it's also going to be God tell Jeremiah why Jeremiah has to do his job. <laughs> and then there's going to be Jeremiah looking at God and saying, "Oh no." And then there's going to be Jeremiah looking at the people says, "You dummies." And so you're going to have a lot of interaction, including in the passage before us today, where we're going to transition from thus says the Lord to the people of Israel to thus says the Lord to my prophet Jeremiah. And we're going to see both of those two in this one passage here in chapter 7. And I'm going to move very quickly to try to get both of those elements in, in this morning's message. It says, stand in the gate of the Lord's house so we know immediately where we are. We know the target audience. We are at the temple. We are way up there in Jerusalem, Temple Mount at the gate, this uh, and, and Solomon's gate. And so we would have been at the, all the people coming in, with getting ready to come in there and worship. Um, we're not sure exactly which gate. We would imagine it's the main entry gate. It could have been the sheep's gate where all the sacrifices were brought in. Um that also would fit into what we have a little bit later on uh, about all the sacrifices. Could have been that it was at the gate where all the sacrifices were brought in, uh, but at one of the gates there he is he is uh assigned to that location. Here's where your preaching station for the day is going to be, and uh, you are going to talk to everyone entering into the gates, and notice what they are going there to do in verse two. At the end of the verse it says they are going there to worship the Lord. They are standing at the entry. They are standing at his signpost, his place of ministry, isn't in the church. it's at the gate to it. He's out there. Can you imagine pulling in the parking lot and I'm out there with a sign, "Repent." you know But that's what it was. He was there, and here are these people He say, "Well, why are you saying that to us? You should be saying that out there on the downtown street corners of Albuquerque, not at the entry gate, not on the porch of the church. These people are going there to worship the Lord. Certainly they've got their act together. They have their priorities straight. They're in the house of the Lord. We find that instead this is the audience that God says, you need to go talk to these people because they are not in a right relationship with me. Um, I, I love videos every now and then I, I see a YouTube video of people who are doing this very thing at a couple of mega churches back one of the largest churches quote unquote churches um, in our country um, have these kind of people every service outside their church declaring please read your Bible please don't believe what you're hearing inside of here please repent. I say, that's going on in this country outside of some churches. Yes. Thank God it's happening. And it's horrific that people aren't responding, but it does happen. And, uh, and it needs to happen maybe more frequently that we recognize that when we see hordes of people going in with this idea that I'm going there to worship the Lord and yet nothing that they are doing is pleasing to God and the words that they are hearing from uh, the speaker in that place is, is abhorrent to God and and in conflict with his word, even how they use this word to do it, uh, need to be warned, need to be told, need to be invited. Please read your Bible and get away from this place because your lives aren't in conformity with the demands of God. And so here we find... In verse 3, the declaration. As people are coming in, this is what he says. Here's what the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Amend your ways and your doings, and I will cause you to do all this place. Amend your ways. That means change. You've got to change some things in your lives. Now remember, they're heading in, maybe with their sacrifice, they're heading into the gates of the temple to worship the Lord, From your and my perspective, we would look at them and say their heart's in the right place. But God has a very different view of their hearts. Because it's not just worshiping in the right place, it's not just coming in and and giving your offering. God has much more significant expectation. His is a much deeper, more profound idea of worship than just entering in with your sacrifice, your offering, and with your your voice ready to do certain things on that hour, for that moment. And so he says, change your ways, amend your ways, you're going to have to fix some things, and you're doing, so the direction of your life and the activity in that direction are both wrong." There's two facets of this. Amend your ways and your doings. The direction of your life and the activities of your life. And then I'll bless you. And that blessing, of course, that God keeps offering you is I will secure you. You'll have security. You'll dwell in this place. This place, will, Jerusalem, Judah, your land will be secure. All the promises of God will be secured. But it requires something of us that we make amendments. That we change things in our lives and that requires us to recognize that the direction of our life, the ways are wrong and the doings are not in conformity with what God would require of us in this day and age. Are our ways and our doings rightly founded out of God's word or are they just the ways and doings of this world that we have tried to clean up a little bit? tried to wash off the ways of this world and polish them up and persist in them. And think, well, God's got to be pleased with that. I mean, I'm not doing these things the way the world does these things, yet I'm still doing these things. Jeremiah didn't have to ask the question I asked this morning, what are you trusting in? Because God had already revealed it to him. So his message is, you're trusting in a lie. You're trusting in the lying words that are being spoken uh, in, of all places, the lying words are being spoken of in the very place that is supposed to be the place where we find God's truth declared and his praises sung. And in that very place where we think we are going to hear truth, we are going and instead we find lies being told and we believe the lies because we like what they say and what they declare um, we begin to trust in. Uh, and so we fill our minds with this information. And it's more than just information. It is a calling. It is it is misinformation that is driving us to false belief. And again, we find that uh, the declaration of the priests and the prophets was this is the temple this is the temple do you think god's gonna let anything happen to his temple this is the temple you don't need to worry because this city will never be taken because this is the place where the temple is We are secure because this is the temple. And over and over and over again, week after week, as they come in with their sacrifice and offerings, day after day in the temple, they're hearing from the priests, we are secure because this is the temple of God. And you keep bringing your sacrifices in on your appointed days. You keep fulfilling those responsibilities. You take care of the Sabbath and God will secure us. And don't we all want to believe that by me simply um, fulfilling religious obligation that I am secure? And let there be no doubt that there are many ministries in this land and around the world that are thriving with that same message. All you have to do is commit this amount of money and this amount of your time and energy and your place will be secure. Make sure you fill this pew and make sure you fill that offering box and we've got it all covered. How can God fault you? And the rest of the week you should be feeling really good about yourself because you came in for an hour here and got to hear about how wonderful you are because you came and because you put some money in. And and for those on the television and radio, you don't even have to do that, just send the money and, and uh, listen to the show. As long as we keep you loyal to the show, and as long as you keep sending your money, um, you're secure. We'll keep giving you the message that God must be pleased with you. You should feel really good. You should be you should just be uplifted by your religious activity. And these are the words that people trust in and their lies. And God is going to go to task in explaining that to Israel, but also to explaining it to the son of the priest, the preacher's son Jeremiah, so that he will uh, be challenged to keep repetitively preaching to people who don't want to hear him. And so both are necessary. We're going to begin with Israel. Here's the offer. And you're going to see a word keep coming back up, right? Repetitive words should get your attention. If you thoroughly amend your ways and your doings, if you thoroughly execute judgment between a man and his wife, if you do not oppose the stranger, the fatherless, the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place or walk after other gods to your heart, then I will cause you to dwell in this place in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever and we might say, well, isn't that just a list of activities? But this is a description in a tying into what we just saw in the last chapter about mourning, about sh- about, about being in sackcloth and ashes and, and of mourning that we come to understand that we have to have radical change in our life, that there should be strong evidence, overwhelming evidence that this is a different Person. This is a different kind of living than anyone else around us, and so he uses this term—a very strong term—that's that's, that's translate for us thoroughly. That you completely amend your ways. This isn't just, oh, I need to tweak this or I need to tweak that. But my whole perspective is wrong. I have to I have to we study the thing from the foundation up. What am I my decisions being based upon? What is my is going to be based upon, what am I putting in front of my eyes, what is coming out of my mouth, what am I allowing to come to my ears, what does is, what is my life look like compared to what everyone else's in the world's life look like? Well, pretty much the same. Then I have to thoroughly amend myself, and not just a little bit here, oh, I probably eat too much or you know, i got to do this little bit different and then God will be pleased. Um, but he's talking about a systemic change. Everything. I mean, look at what you have to change here. Um, not only your ways and doings, but um, you as a community, as a society, as, as a church, if you will, but as a people of God, are you executing judgment between a man and his neighbor? Always. Is there justice? Are you doing what's right? Not what's right for you. But what is right? What is honest, fair, just? And he goes on, he says, are you oppressing people? And he gives a list of some of those people shedding innocent blood. And then the idolatry of having other gods notice to your hurt. They're injuring you, you don't even know it. Because no one has chastised you for serving them six days out of seven while you're serving, worshiping the Lord one day out of seven. And so he invites them to break down their self-examination to its very core that we're not talking about just some superficial bumps that need to be rubbed smooth. We are talking about something that has to be transformed at the very deepest levels of your heart. Your attitude towards the things of this world and towards the gods of this world, that we transform them entirely to the point that we cannot tolerate stomach, that we cannot conceive that we are going to go back into that any longer that we that we join God, if you will, in being enraged that those kind of things happen within the church or within our family let alone within us so we find the problem here's the Solution, this is really interesting, God gives us the solution midpoint, and then he goes back to the problem, verse 8, for the people. You trust in lying words that cannot profit. And here's the question, what are you doing during the week? You might say, stealing? Well, when you oppress widows, fatherless, <laughs> um, when you oppress the stranger, and you're shedding innocent blood, you're taking your wealth from those that can least afford it, um, that's stealing, these are going to go right there. And we can socially identify these with those above. You're going to steal, murder, commit adultery. You're going to swear falsely. You're bringing incest to Baal. You're walking after other gods. Um, all during the week, do you really think that God is clueless that you're doing this for six days out of the week? And then you're going to walk into God. You're going to put on your suit. You're going to take a shower first, probably. Um, put on your suit. Um, Get your Bible um, and walk in and and be, I'm here to worship the Lord. God says, is that something you really expect me to applaud you for? You're going to do all of that And then come, stand before me in this house called by my name, and said, We are delivered to do all these abominations. And the idea here is that we are coming here not with an idea of changing any of those actions in our lives, but to just be relieved of the guilt of them and the responsibility of them. Sound familiar? We're going to come and we're going to uh, just come into this place with no intention of changing anything. We'll come next week and we'll bring our sacrifices because I can live however I want if I go in on the Sabbath and I have a sacrifice to cover that sin. Does that sound familiar to you at all? No plan to change it, no concept that there is a a horrificness to sin, just, I'm going to keep doing it, but I can go to the church once a week and confess it all and be absolved of it. That's what Israel's doing. They're doing horrific acts of sin throughout the week. They're showing up at the temple with their sacrifice in hand. Here I am, I've got my goat or my lamb, my calf, whatever it is, my doves, um, and I'm here to, to be absolved of those sins, knowing, planning, intending to do those same things tomorrow. And God says, really? And you think I'm going to accept those? I want you to tie, go a little bit farther into the passage where God is talking only to Jeremiah. That really starts in verse 16. But I want you to look at how angry that makes God. Um, uh, We're going to talk about the queen of heaven here a little bit, but I want you to look down a little bit further in verse 21. Why is God, in verse 20, he talks about how he's angry. My anger, my fury. God is so angry, he's going to burn the whole place down and everyone in it and around it. And here's what verse 21 says. Add your burnt offerings to your sacrifice and eat meat. I did not speak to your fathers, command them in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt concerning burnt offerings or sacrifice. You say, well, wait a minute. Yeah, uh, he did tell them how to do that. But it wasn't his intention that this is how you please me by sinning like the devil and coming in and having a sacrifice to absolve you of it. That is not what the intention of those instructions were. The instructions were this. Obey My voice, I'll be your God, you'll be my people, walk in all the ways that I've commanded you, that it may be well with you. That is the spirit of the law. With an understanding that you will stumble, you will fall, you will struggle. Um, But a repentant heart brings a sacrifice to God and says, Please forgive me, not because I'm planning on doing it again, but because I'm genuinely sorry I did it at all. God says, the thing I gave you when you came out of Egypt, the law was, its purpose and its its objective was not to let you sin however you want and then bring a sacrifice in and be absolved of that and then go out and sin the same sins over again the next week. Can you imagine David doing that? I think David is one of the greatest examples of a guy that did a lot of sin. But I just keep saying this, I challenge you to find him doing the same sin twice. I mean, read some of those Psalms and you can see how broken he is in his spirit over the fact that he has offended God and reaped the harvest of that offense and he doesn't want that to happen again. And this is the spirit of Repentance. But Israel had lost track of that. Of really changing your ways and your doings. No, they didn't want to change their ways of doings. They just wanted to get a get out of consequences free card. And that was their sacrifice. So they're going to carry it in on Sunday, plop it down. Oh, there, okay. That week's sin is taken care of. Now I can go out and do some more. Knowing Or believing that I can go back in there and cover those. And that's what's entailed. And so God says, I don't want your sacrifices. Because you don't understand their purpose and you have have soiled them. And in the New Testament we have some very similar um, phrases and ideas about how, how can you keep sinning? You're not adding to the grace of God. Where sin is great, grace is great, but I don't keep sinning so that I can experience more of God's forgiveness. doesn't work that way. We are to be holy as He is holy. We are seeking to transform ourselves in the image of His, of his Son. We are seeking to put off the old man, to put on the new man. We have multitudinous places in the New Testament that call Christians out of this kind of spirit false spirit of live like the devil six days a week, go in one day a week, do your religious obligation, be absolved of all you did the previous week, and now you can go back to doing the same wickedness on Monday morning. Or Sunday morning for the Israelites. This is a heinous lie from Satan's mouth. And those that perpetrate it upon the people are false prophets and false priests that God says, I hate. I will destroy. I will burn them down. I will bring them into the severest judgment. This makes God's house a den of thieves. And evidently, this was the same spirit that Jesus saw In the temple in his day of walking in it. And then God declares, I've seen it in verse 11. I've seen it. I've seen what you're doing. I see what it is producing. I see what you're doing during the week. You come in and you think you can appease me. You think that this satisfies me. You think that this is somehow pleasing in my sight. And it isn't. At all. It is infuriating me. So, what did God do? First he's going to warn them. In verse 12 he says, um, just for the record, let's start with the lie. Let's start with the lie that the temple is secure because it's my temple and God can't let anything bad happen there um, because it's the temple of the Lord. Let me start there. Let's take you to Shiloh. Have you visited Shiloh lately? He invites them. Now, some of you may not know why is Shiloh an important place. Well, when Israel crossed the Jordan River under the leadership of Joshua, they crossed over and they came to Gilgal. And there they set up an altar out of stones because they crossed the Jordan River on dry ground, just like they crossed the Red Sea on dry ground. They picked up giant rocks um, I, I would assume they're giant. If I was a representative of my tribe, I would want a big rock not just a little pebble. Here, Benjamin was there. Um, I'd take my biggest guy in the tribe and I'd send him out there and find the biggest rock he could carry and haul it over there and plop it down. So I'm assuming that there's 12, 13 pretty big rocks there. Um, and they built an altar, and that was Gilgal. They all did something incredible just a few miles just uh, like four or five miles from Jericho, the first fortress they are going to encounter. And that is they circumcised every male, uh, which apparently they hadn't been doing while they were in the wilderness. And so they circumcised all their males um, because everyone was dead but two, um, Joshua and Caleb, and so that died in the wilderness. And uh, so they go in, they conquer the land, and once conquered, um, we find that they set up the tabernacle in a semi-permanent, Nest in Shiloh, um, and so they set it up. The timer was set up there. That's where the, everyone goes, and it's in Shiloh for quite a while. Um, that's the, really the first per, semi-permanent place. Um, it's in Shiloh there, and we still find it in Shiloh when you get to First Samuel. Um, when you find uh, uh, Hannah bringing Samuel, where does, Sam, where does Hannah take Samuel to Shiloh? That's where the tabernacle is. So it's there a long time from Joshua all the way to the time of Samuel and David. And really it's, it's David that's going to move it to Jerusalem. And so he says, let's go to Shiloh. Um, the temple was, or the tabernacle, the Ark of the Covenant outside of Jerusalem, the place that it was the very longest was Shiloh. That's in the northern tribal area. He says, why don't you go see what Shiloh looks like these days? Go over there and look. Well, they didn't have to go over there and look because they knew. It was devastated by the Assyrians. He said, if I let them do that to Shiloh in the northern part, do you really think that I'm so committed to a place that I would defend this regardless of your actions? So he gives them an example to say, Here's a, an example, historical example that they could go out there and witness for themselves. Go look at Shiloh and now tell me that the priest's statements are true. You want to believe the priests that say the temple, the temple, the temple, go out there and visit Shiloh and tell me that you're secure because it's the temple. Second facet of his warning. First, I'm going to demolish the lie. The lie is a lie. I'll prove it. Historically, there it is. Verse 13, we come to the second facet, and that is the invitation. I have been sending you truth tellers. And this is a phrase that's going to keep coming up over and over again. They're rising up early in the morning. They rise up early. Um, and sometimes they say early in the morning, sometimes they just say rising up early and speaking to you that you may hear. Um, that is that they are not just waiting till you're at the very cusp of falling into the pit of hell before hearing it. The idea here is that you've had lots of opportunities. I told you early on in this process, I started sending my prophets way back here and you just ignored them and ignored them. And ignored them. I, I did it early on. I've given you plenty of warning. I've given you multiple opportunities. Um, And you can't blame one king because you've been evil for multiple kings at this point. Even in the midst of Josiah's reforms and what happens afterwards, we recognize that the people were just given to this stuff, to the evil described by God here. He says, I've given you multiple early frequent opportunities to get this right, and you did not answer. And so, based upon the fact that I can, there's ample evidence that the priests are lying, but you don't want to look at that evidence, and given that you have had truth tellers coming to you for an extended period of time, and you didn't want to hear what they had to say. You didn't allow it to transform you. So therefore, I'm going to destroy this place. The place you trust in. And this is wonderful. This is not God being mean. This is God being so gracious. You're trusting the wrong thing. And God says, I'm going to rip that thing away from you. Now you understand why I asked you the question, what are you trusting in? And maybe the greatest grace of God is to rip it away from you. Israel was trusting in the temple. They trusted in this place. He says, I'm going to do to it what I've done to Shiloh. It's going to be overrun. It's going to be desecrated. It's going to be cast out in my sight. I'm not even going to... Look upon it as it happens, and it's going to be a horrible event, and it is not only on the occasion of Babylon, but even after Christ, the occasion of the Romans. It it, both of these destructions of Jerusalem are just horrific. The stories that come out of it because God's going to turn his face away, he didn't turn his face away at a whim. He didn't turn his face away because he lacked love, mercy, and grace. He demonstrated those over and over and over again, invited and invited, sent out truth-tellers. Yes, they were the minority, no doubt. But they were sent nonetheless, and they had evidence. They had God's word. They had the authority behind their words so God is going to rip away from them the very things, the thing that they trust in. And perhaps the greatest evidence of God's grace in our lives to bring us to our knees before him is to rip away from you the thing you're trusting in the most that isn't him. Your false gods. Who are you praying to really? who are we dependent upon who do we believe I've had many occasions that I have had individuals come and say pastor what do you think and I'll say well God's word says this and then they find counsel elsewhere and they say well my lawyer says this my parent says this my teacher says this my professor says this and I just shrugged my shoulders and said well then you have a choice don't you God's word says this, they say that. Now we'll find out what you believe. Who do you trust? And sadly, my experience has been that we don't trust the Lord. We don't trust his word. We don't believe it. We'll believe the economist. We'll believe the banker. We'll believe the lawyer. We'll believe the doctor. We'll believe... The scientists, we will believe. Everyone else will not believe the Lord. They all have priority over what the Lord says. That ancient book, it doesn't understand. Really? (laughs) You just talked about my Lord, the God of all the universe who understands things like you and I will never understand. Who has given us this wondrous grace And so you believe in all these things, and God begins to rip them out. And much like Israel, we're going to see later on, um, you think, well, once he rips away the thing they believe in, they're going to get things right, and that's not true. The false prophets are going to disappear because they've been discredited. Also not true. In fact, what we find later on in the book of Jeremiah is people are going to believe even more in them. With Jerusalem in ruins, the temple destroyed, they're still going to go after the false gods. They're still going to pile up for themselves people to tell them what they want to hear. But they're going to be in Babylon, in captivity, and Jeremiah's going to have to send them a letter saying, listen, don't listen to the false prophets that tell you don't even unpack. We're going to be heading right back. You think, well, if God rips away the thing I trust in the most, then I'll get things right. No, you won't. He's just demonstrating his grace to you, his love to you, and giving you another choice. Now I've ripped away the temple. What are you going to trust in now? Are you going to trust me now? No, we're going to accuse him and trust in the error even more. Because this is a ways thing. You have never amended our way of viewing life and viewing God and viewing social justice, of viewing our lives. We aren't viewing it from his perspective, but from our own interests. And so we stake claim against God and we gravitate even more to the false teachers. We gravitate even more to the lies because we didn't transform ourselves from this age to the one to come. And I'm going to give you one example that God gives to Jeremiah. Jeremiah. We are introduced to a phrase that's only used in Jeremiah, and it's given to us again in Revelation. This term. He says, um, Jeremiah, if you think I'm being a little harsh here, I want you to go see this happening. And we're invited to it in verse 18. Uh, The children gather wood, the fathers kindle the fire, the women knead dough and make cakes for the queen of heaven. They pour out drink offerings to other gods that they may provoke me to anger. And boy, do they provoke him to anger. They should be ashamed of this. Instead, they're proud of it. And so God enlightens Jeremiah to something going on that Jeremiah, I don't think at this point, knew was happening. Because it happens in people's homes. That's where you cook. The children were out gathering wood. They were involved in it. Kids are involved in worshiping this false goddess. The fathers were involved. They stoked the fire, they got the oven going. They invited it. And the women were most intimately involved. In fact, the women drove this worship. They baked the cakes, they had offerings, they they decorated them, um, and it was all for this term the Queen of Heaven in verse eighteen. They had drink offerings to other gods because the Queen of Heaven had many suitors, suitor gods. And so we're going to talk about this. And so Jeremiah is being confronted with something that I am convinced he had no idea that this was going on um, because it's in the privacy of people's homes. And it's not going to really even be dealt with by God until much later in the book of Jeremiah. So let's go later in the book of Jeremiah and find out when it's being dealt with. Let's go to Jeremiah 44 because it has some, I, some reference to what we're dealing with today. Um, in Jeremiah 44, it's the only other place in the Old Testament where we're going to find this term used, and it's used throughout the chapter. Um, and it's not going to be Israel in the land. I want you to notice that. Israel, has, uh, Judah, has already um, been scattered. Um, at least one, if not two, of Babylon's invasions have already occurred, and so the possibility is the temple might still be standing, but we don't think so even then. It might have been after the third. Jeremiah is down there in, Jerusalem, in Egypt because they have kidnapped him and taken him down there. And he finds here in Egypt, the people of Judah are still committing the same sin that got them destroyed Up in Jerusalem. So here's the Egyptian faction, the ones that that ran down to Egypt thinking that they'll be safe down there from the Babylonians. And so they run down there. They have they have they have kidnapped Jeremiah and taken to him. That happened in verse forty three. We'll get to that. And um, God sends this message. Let's jump to verse thirteen of forty four says for I will punish those who dwell in the land of Egypt as I punish Jerusalem by the sword, by famine and by pestilence, that none of the remnant of Judah who have gone to the land of Egypt to dwell there shall escape or survive. Wow. You get away from Jerusalem only to get down to Egypt and then find out God hates you there too. <laughs> he has destroyed the thing you trust in, but there's a second there's a reason you trust in what the lies are being told of the temple. And that's because of what you're doing during the week and the other gods in your life who are your true gods. The ones you really believe. And you take them with you. And so let's look at what they're involved in. Verse 15 All the men who knew that their wives had burned incense to other gods, with all the women who stood by a great multitude, and all the people who dwelt in the land of Egypt in Pathros, answered Jeremiah, saying, As for the word that you have spoken to us in the name of the Lord, we will not listen to you. Why in the world did you kidnap him and take him with you if you didn't want to listen to him? I don't get it. Verse 17, but we will certainly do whatever has gone out of our own mouth to burn incense to the queen of heaven and to pour out drink offerings to her as we have done, we and our fathers, our kings and our princes in the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem. For then we had plenty of food, we well off and saw no trouble. Since we stopped burning incense to the queen of heaven and pouring out drink offerings to her, we have lacked everything and have been consumed by the sword and by famine. And the women also said, We burn incense to the queen of heaven and pour out drink offerings to her. Did we make cakes for her to worship her and pour out drink offerings to her without our husband's permission? They had their husband's permission. And in Hebrew law, that meant that their vows to them were legally binding before God because they had their husband's permission. And he goes on, and, and all through here, we're going to get to it a lot more when we get to chapter 44, which will be, I don't know, probably after the Lord comes back. If we, I don't know if we'll get there. Um, here they are. Who is this queen of heaven that they're so enwrapped with? And people say, oh, it's the Babylonian, and they name it. And it's like, well, Babylon hasn't shown up yet. Remember, Babylon was a the people they didn't know. So who is this? Well, we know that the, the Ashtoreths, Uh, The Canaanite, that's a female god associated with the moon, queen of heaven, um, or the star Venus, associated with the star Venus, Um, but certainly with the night heavens, um, we have um, the asterisk, and then she has a suitor, um, astar. Um, and so Ashtoreth is the female version. You go down to Egypt, you have no problem fitting in with the Egyptians because they already have Isis and Osiris to match up with Ashtoreth and Astar. You fit right in. And in fact, you could have gone anywhere in the world and fit in. Because the fact is, is that this is the false god of the world, goddess She is comparable to Diana of the Ephesians. Remember that? Great is Diana of the Ephesians. Well, Diana of the Ephesians lines up perfectly with Ashtoreth, and lines up perfectly with Isis, and lines up perfectly across the globe um, in world religion after world religion, and those who have studied it so carefully have concluded that the true God of the world is a goddess is the moon and the earth. And that goddess worship has penetrated into Christianity and, and we find the elevation not of the child but of the mother who bore the child. And this queen of heaven is described as the harlot that rides the beast in Revelation. That's one of her titles, Queen of Heaven. One who has captivated their hearts, particularly of women. Men have given permission to it, sustained it, allowed it, even at one point said, it must be the thing that brings us wealth. That must be why our crops are doing so well. Because of the moon. And they worship her. And it is no mistaking that in Greek thought, in Latin thought, that most of what we consider the earth sciences are feminine. And we put our trust in Her. She gives us crops. She gives us wealth. It's only if we abandon them that they go away. But they did not acknowledge that the only reason they abandoned them for a season was because they were driven from their place of worship by a provoked God. God pours out, and because they didn't repent... They didn't change their mend their ways. They didn't amend their doings. They didn't uh, commit themselves to this full re-investigation of themselves in this and, and conforming themselves fully to God and and breaking, allowing them to break them down to the very core because they persisted in this. And now they have accusation against God. And instead of humble surrender to Him, they point the finger at Him and declare that he is the reason, and we need to go back to our old ways. And in Egypt, they go right back to worshiping the queen of heaven. With their little cakes, with little moons on them, little cookies, decorated for their god, goddess. In Jeremiah, you can almost envision the god saying, listen, this is what's going on out there, outside of the temple. So you don't think I have a reason to be angry? And you can almost sense Jeremiah's taken aback. They're doing that? Oh yes, they're doing that. And there are no sacrifices that take that away when there's no repentance. When we continue to follow the counsels, verse 24, that's right, I'm sorry, yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but followed the counsels and the dictates of their evil heart and went backward and not forward. And then comes the phrase that is very telling, and that is, oh, I'm way past time. The very telling phrase is that they did worse than their father's. Doing worse than your father's sin. And i got to tell you, generation after generation, um, preachers have, got, have declared it and declared it. Go through, and I would invite you to read preachers from 100 years ago, from 200 years ago, from 300 years ago, and the things that they were appalled at then, we would just smile at now and say, isn't that silly for him to be preaching against that? Isn't it silly for me preaching against that? Because we are worse now than our fathers ever were. And this is the indictment against us by God. Your sin is worse than your father's. You've not tried to change anything for the better. You're just getting deeper and deeper and deeper into it. And now you look back at your forefathers and think they were simpletons, and they were when it came to sin. But you know what their fathers thought? They thought their forefathers were simpletons, and they were when it came to sin. Less than 100 years ago, our nation saw the evil of alcohol and said, We need to outlaw it. Simple, wasn't it? What simpletons? How silly. In fact, I've had history teachers say, Oh, that was a I was like, really? Have you ever looked at the crime stats of the period of uh, when we weren't allowed to sell alcohol in this country? Have you looked at the divorce rates and what happened to them? Have you looked at the things that happened in this country when we said that's wrong and we took civil action against it? We amended our Constitution. We amended our ways and our doings. And for all those years... Blessing happened to this country. But what do we see portrayed of that period of time? All we see portrayed as if the speakeasies were on every block of every city in our nation, and they weren't. They were only in the most vile places of the biggest cities. And we have people saying, oh, that was a disaster. That was a failure. That was, that, was, that was a social experiment that failed. No, it was a nation responding to good preaching and amending their ways. And for that season, we experienced incredible blessing. Oh, the, but our sin is so much worse than our father's. Examine it. Look back. Go back. Go back generationally and start finding out The innocence towards sin that was there. And the sensitivity and how desensitized we are to so much sin today that we think it's normal. That's just normal behavior. No, it's not. It's sin. But the world has said, you act like you're from the Victorian era. Well, I want to go back farther than that. I'd like to be in the Edenic era. I want to purge my life of sin. And this is the evidence of what you're trusting in. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Lord, we have to acknowledge that we have other gods before us, before you. God's of this age that we trust in. We believe what they say. We make our decisions based upon their lies and their influence. And we're sorry. And Lord, um, in your love and mercy, we pray that you might rip them away from us. But we know that that really isn't enough to change our heart. Lord, so we thank you for your message today, for Jeremiah and for your word, warning us that we don't need to have those ripped away if we will rip them out ourselves. It was much better to amend our ways, our doings. Lord, give us this heart to seek not to do more sin than our fathers, but less. To strive after and desire after a way of life that hearkens back not just a generation, but generations when men sought after you. Lord, Israel had their generations that walked with you as examples, and as we do. And yet it was not sufficient transform their hearts. So, Lord, we pray that we might be more willing to consider our ways and our doings and amend them out of hearts that are broken over how much of our lives is a displeasure to you. we might transform them into that which reflects your presence in our life. And we know your spirit will help us in this. We know that there's blessing on the other side of it, though there's great opposition. And so, Lord, we pray, knowing all of this, that might become real in us. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.